This is On Call with Dr. Dave. I'm going to be the one telling the stories today. And to tell the stories, I invited one of my friends on. He's not in medicine. And I particularly chose him because I, he's a good friend. And because he's not in medicine, I wanted to talk to people outside of medicine so I could tell my stories instead of trying to take time from the doctors and nurses I have on when they're trying to tell their stories. So Jamil and I have known each other since I moved to Richmond, Virginia for medical school. So he met me at the beginning stages of me becoming a doctor just early i don't know we probably met before med school even started i think that first summer we got together at a friend's house and played some games and that i don't even think i'd started so that was way back 2007 so we've known each other for quite a while but i don't think i've ever told you too many of my medical stories so it's fun to have you on my pleasure man I, i'm I'm excited. I love you. <laughs> so I don't I don't have a format particularly for this. I have a lot of stories I want to share with people, but I don't have required ones that I'm de definitely going to share. And I kind of want to just have a conversation with you. So I'm going to kick it back to you and just say, what kind of stories do you want to hear? What, what do you want to hear from me? So I remember um, when we were at Kent and Tara's house years ago. Damn it! I think you... I, I think... I think you told a story about, I don't know why I remember this. It just intrigues me. But um, did you tell us a story about a, a lady's high heel in someone's eye <laughs> that you had to remove? <laughs> so that's one of my all-time best stories. And I wish I was the one that took the story from beginning to end. It was my co-resident that was more involved in the case than I was, but it, it's a great story. And there's actually some pictures online. So a lot of the stories I tell, I'm going to try to protect the patient's identity. This patient actually signed a waiver and allowed some of her stuff to be filmed and by the ER doctor there. So I might be able to post some of the photos, but this story is just crazy. It's one of those things I'm at in residency doing my ophthalmology training. And we get anything and everything, but most of the time it's just, you know, trauma or infections right around this area. Uh, in fellowship, I started to take care of more of the full face, but back then it was really specifically this area. So this person, this lovely young lady decides to go to the club. So she's at the club downtown Augusta, Georgia, having a good time. It gets pretty late. And most of my stories get really good about 1 or 2 a.m. So if you go home before midnight, most of the time, you're probably not going to meet a surgeon in the middle of the night. If you stay out past midnight, that 1 a.m., 2 a.m. crowd, those are the people that usually make it into the hospital. So just my little caveat, go home a little early. You know, don't be the last person in the club. Don't don't wait until everybody's had like 10 drinks in them. But this lady's at the club just dancing. She gets in an altercation with somebody else, another young woman in the club, and they start exchanging words. And then they start fighting. So the couple, couple fists are thrown, couple little things are done. One of the girls, she takes off her high heel. It's a stiletto. The stiletto is a good six inches, this really thin little stiletto. She takes the shoe off and just smacks it right at this person's face. The heel of the stiletto goes in right in the corner. It barely misses hitting the eye directly. It goes in and lodges into the sinuses. And it oh partially gosh. transected one of the muscles of the eye. So she immediately goes, she comes to the hospital. They work on her. It's not budging. They think the safest thing to do is to go to the um, OR to take it out. They do a CT scan 
And the CT scan is crazy. So the CT scan shows this stiletto just deeply embedded in this person's face. My co-resident's the one that's in, and he gets called in for this one. So he goes in, and he thinks it's just going to come out easy. They get her all cleaned up, all that betadine scrub in there. And he goes to just pull the shoe out, and he just pulls, and just it won't come. And so yeah, he legit puts his foot on the bed to get a little extra force, and he just pops that thing out. But honestly, the lady got off lucky because other than just a little bit of damage, the muscle that moves the eye in, she was fine. The eye was fine. The vision was like checked after she woke up. She was doing really well. She was not somebody that ended up coming back for her follow-up care. I know she sounds like she's a really responsible person and would come for post-op care, but that was the first and only time we saw her. And so I don't know what she, how she did long-term, but that's, that's like in the short term. Now, this one was mine though. Like, so a very similar story, like almost exactly kind of same details. It was during my residency and this person, like she was in downtown Augusta again, like just going to the clubs. The crazy thing about this story is this person had delivered a baby four weeks before she was only four weeks out from being pregnant. And for some reason just had to get back in the club, go dancing. I don't know what was going she wanted on. Wanted to get her twerk on. Yeah, so she she just had to you know get back that groove, you know? And so she goes to the club and she same thing, like late about one or two AM to gets in a fight with somebody else at the at the club. And this lady pulls out a box cutter. Now, if you bring a box cutter to a club, you have every intention of using that box cutter. You don't bring a box cutter just for, for whatever. So I think this other person had every intention of getting an altercation. Oh, so she takes ghetto. the box cutter. You bring a box cutter, you bring a box cutter. <laughs> Box cutter to a club. You're straight ghetto. Yeah. So she takes the box cutter out during this fight and just slams it and stabs it. And it goes right into this person's eyeball. Oh, my god! And so I get called in the middle of the night and have to go take care of it. And so she has a laceration, a cut through the eyelid into the eyeball. Luckily, it didn't go very deep. And so I was able to fix everything in that. She had this scar afterwards that was kind of right through the center of her vision. But she did pretty well because everything was pretty, what we call anterior. So it's just like the beginning structures and it missed the lens inside the eye. So it really? went through the cornea. So I was able to save that eye and she did really well. But box cutters like come up. It was only about, I don't know, like just this year, another patient came to me and she was at work and somebody at work lost their temper and grabbed a box cutter and stabbed this person in the eye. But that one actually missed the eyeball, went right through the upper eyelid right here and just cut the muscle that lifts the eyeball. So she came to me because her eyelid was droopy, which is called ptosis. And I was able to go in and kind of put the muscle back where it belongs. And she's doing well now. But it's just insane that people are just out there with box cutters, you know, just willing to just stab somebody. So those ones, you know, going to the club, box cutters, you never know what kind of situation you're going to get it yourself into. I, you know, that's the thing, these stories that I come across, I just, I would have never thought about these things before I went into medicine. And now when somebody says, oh, the person that said, oh yeah, you know, like I got stabbed with a box cutter. I'm like, yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah. I'm getting to the point in my career where even the craziest thing that somebody tells me, I start to say, oh yeah, I remember when so-and-so or back in residency or med school. So yeah, crazy. But that stiletto, because the images just and just the thought of a stiletto just going straight into your face and just embedding in your skull, that was a crazy story. So I'm, I'm I, I can see why you remembered that one. It's like a Pulp Fiction movie, man. 
Oh, yeah, it's crazy. People out there really like the stuff that you see in the movies. People do that in real life, which is just astounding to me. No doubt. Any other stories that you you heard about or remember me telling or just like you want to hear just my funniest or saddest or grossest story of all time? I actually I don't know if this is too deep, but I was thinking about it. <clears throat> and I know last time you and I talked, we talked about, um, you know, some just helping people and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know, like, are you able are you able to do like pro bono work? Mm-hmm. Like in really, do you do a lot? So I, I, that gets interesting because a lot of what I do, like when I'm on call, turns out to be pro bono work. So I'm on call and it, I, I, I can't truly call it pro bono because the hospital does pay me just to be on call, but it, they don't pay me like if people are insured or uninsured, they don't pay me any different. They just like pay me just like for these 24 hours, you're just available if we need you. Now, the majority of people I get called in on don't have insurance. And so when I go in and see them and take care of them, like they're not going to end up paying and that's okay. That's just part of me being a doctor and taking care of people. So I've seen a lady in the hospital, like five days in a row, no insurance. And it's just one of those things that I'm going to take care of. So I'm not making more money or less money from the hospital because she's insured or not insured. She just needs me to take care of her. So I'm taking care of her as many times as she needs me to see her. So that that's kind of one of the things that I get to do often. And it's nice because, you know, I'm not going to send anybody to collections. If they need me in the moment, they get to see me. I'll see them and follow up in their, in the clinic. I get to take care of them and I don't have to stress about charging them because I do do plenty of surgeries for people that have insurance. I do a lot of pay, you know, like older eyelid surgeries for people on Medicare, lifting their eyelids. I do cosmetic surgery as well. So, you know, I make enough where I can not stress about the people that can't pay. And then in, in my fellowship, uh, it's been a little harder since I've been in private practice. I'm, I'm hoping to get back to doing some of these mission trips. But during my fellowship, we were able to go to Haiti twice. So Sweet. we would fly to Haiti and spend like, a, you know, like about a week, that's kind of like a, maybe a half of a week, um, like in Haiti, we'd get there. It takes a while to fly in, get to Haiti. And then we would go and we'd kind of like get to the clinic and then we just see anybody and everybody that's just been waiting for us to come over the last year and so we'd see this huge clinic day and then we decide like who needed our care most and then we'd schedule the next three days of surgery depending on who needed us the most and we take care of the biggest cases on the first and second day so that we could see them and follow up and take care of them and then you know the lighter cases we'd end for the last day the nice thing about the situation is in haiti is it was set up by a doctor who is in Canada and he funnels some of his money from his, uh, he owns a couple old folks homes and uh, a couple clinics and he funnels the money down there. And the beautiful thing that what he has done is he has hired Haitian doctors. So Haitian like local native doctors that are ophthalmologists, ENT doctors, and they can manage and take care of these people all year round. And so when we come in and do a surgery, it's not like, Oh, we don't know if they did well or did poorly. We can go in, take care of them. And then if there's post-op complications or these people need something, then the doctors can contact us directly and we can guide their care. So that was really interesting to be able to go to Haiti, take care of people there. Uh, The care is kind of like paid for by the the donations from some churches and from this uh, doctor in Canada and everything there. they, They pay what they can. 
but same thing. I loved going down there, not having to worry about getting paid because, you know, it's my time. I'm there just to help people. But the thing in Haiti is there's a lot of things that we think about in medicine in the United States that just are, you know, the suture I use. It's like, I only use this suture for this type of surgery, or I only like this instrument. And you get into Haiti and it's just like, you just got to make whatever works work. Because they Dude, don't I have use a lot. A shoestring. So, yeah, like you shoestring, like the, like putting things like sterilizing. There's mosquitoes flying around that have, you mm. know, like malaria. You don't want to get bit by that. So you're trying to slap the mosquitoes, but you're trying to stay sterile. Now, when, when somebody really loses an eye, like we have all <clears> these like prosthetics we put in there. There's an implant that takes the space of the eye. In Haiti, we couldn't get a hold of any of those and we needed to replace that, do some surgeries on people. So what they do is they just legit would sterilize like soak a marble in betadine and we would put that back there and sew it in. But these people are just so grateful, you know, that it was just, they're some of the most beautiful people in the whole world. Some of the most grateful people. It's the poorest country in the Western hemisphere and they don't have a lot, but they show up. They're kind, they're gracious. They were always like so nice to work with. And it was just so nice to get out of the Western medicine mindset where it's just like insurance and prior authorizations and all the things I have to go through to even do my job in America to go to Haiti and just have somebody like you have a problem. I know how to fix that problem, do surgery and just like, you know, say good luck and not even think about money or getting paid for it. So I, I like doing that and I, I want to get back into that. But being on call, like I said, I do get paid for that. So it's partially not pro bono because I get paid. But the other thing too is like I've done a lot of free surgeries over the last like four and a half years that I've been private practice and it's fine. You know, I, I'm happy to take care of these people and the bottom line is not that affected by taking care of people that really need help in the moment. That's awesome. <clears throat> that is super awesome. So, so most of the people that you are, do you deal with a lot of indigent people here? Yeah. Where, so, where are you at? Like, You're in Georgia still? No. So I'm in, I'm in Austin, Texas. Texas. Now. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, like downtown Austin has a pretty large homeless population. Um, some poor people, immigration, like immigrants from, um, like, uh, Mexico, there's a guy on call this last week. He got uh, injured. Uh, once again, it was a it was a bar related incident, but uh, somebody threw a, a beer bottle, glass bottle at him, and it sliced him in the eye. And he was that happened in Mexico, but he came like he works in the United States, so he came up to get care in the, it, up here in the United States. So just anybody and everybody that they get injured enough that they end up going to the hospital that I take call for, then whatever they need in the moment, I'm I'm just going to take care of them. Sweet. So yeah, speaking of Mexico, more. well, we all do. <laughs> That's we all true. Do. Was there ever a time when you were like scared, like physically, you know, for your physical being? It's a good question because I've in in Baltimore, we took care of a lot of people, and there's a lot, you know, like I did my fellowship in Baltimore. And there's a lot of gang-related violence in Baltimore, a lot of stabbings, a lot of shootings. So anytime I was on call there, I was taking care of some sort of you know trauma. And most of the time, though, once I'm once people were in the system, they were pretty grateful just to be taken care of. So no matter what their background was, they knew we were like taking care of them. They came to the hospital. So it, as a doctor, I never really felt 
really all that insecure, uncomfortable around people. The only time that it's a little interesting is when people are coming out of anesthesia. So the people that get the most worked up, so they'd be coming from a, a gang-related shootout, and they'd be in the hospital with bullets and trauma, and then I meet them, and I need to take the bullet fragments out or work on their eye or work on something that was damaged from the shooting. And they're, they're obviously like not even to the point of PTSD yet, because they're still kind of in the trauma. It's not post-traumatic. They're still in the trauma of getting shot and going through this traumatic event. And then we put them to sleep. And I do the surgery. As they're waking up, though, they're confused. Their, their kind of hands are tied to their side. And so they would get really nervous and they think they're you know still in that fight for their life. And so at that point, they'd get violent and start like, you know, like trying to throw punches or start to do threat, you know, threaten us and everything like that. And luckily, I'm a pretty strong guy. And these guys, like as young and as strong as they were, they were anesthetized, you know, they're just barely coming out, but they, they don't know where they are. So they start to fight pretty violently. So I was always the guy that would you know, kind of pin these guys down as they would wake up from their surgeries until they were aware enough. And I used to like tell them where they were. I'm like, you're in the hospital. You've had surgery. I realized that rarely worked. I would have to ask them if they knew where they were. And if I let them talk and explain where they thought they were and then say, no, you're in the hospital, that worked a little bit better. But every time like a guy started to fight me, I'd tell him like, look, man, I am a hundred to, to zero in fights against anesthetized guys. You know, I've never <laughs> lost a fight against a dude coming out of anesthesia yet. <laughs> yeah. And so, but you know, like, there's like people, but like most of the time, like the nurses are a little smaller or, you know, like, so like most of the time I was the guy holding people down, but I was never really super afraid because I just knew they were in those situations. Um, but uh, that, rem I guess, you know what, the, the, I did get nervous sometimes when I worked in the prison. So when I was in Georgia doing my residency, we would go to the medical state prison and we would take care of people in the prison system there. So anybody that got hurt or needed medical care in any medical, like any jail or prison in Georgia would get shipped to the medical prison for their care. And in those situations, that's where I got a little nervous. So they had kind of the people that weren't in there for violent crimes, but all there was was a door. I would just open the door and there's like Gen Pop and there's like 30 dudes just standing there. And I just called the next name. They'd walk in. So just opening that door, even though there was no reason for them to get violent, they were in for crimes that weren't really going to keep them in, the, in jail very long or prison. It was just weird to like open the door, have 30 guys just stare at you and just know if they rush the door, there's nothing I could do. The people that made me the most nervous, though, like they had what I what I called the one guard prisoners, two guard prisoners and three guard prisoners. The one guard prisoners were in jail or prison for violent crimes. So they always had to go someplace with a guard. The two guard prisoners were people that were like pretty, like not just violent, but had murdered or raped or done something really aggressive. So they would come with two guards and like usually full chains. And then there was the three guard prisoners. The three guard prisoners were in there for violent crimes and or they were actively violent in prison. So they had like, killed people in prison. They had killed guards, other prisoners. And so they were like at risk to go be violent at any time. So they'd always be with three guards. But back in the prison system, we still had these pen and paper charts and I needed consent forms to be able to treat them. And so when I would be like, okay, here's the consent form for your surgery or for your procedure. And I had to hand them the pencil and the, like, the paper. Like I got like pictures from like all those like violent, like, you know, like the uh, movies I used to watch where I would just imagine them grabbing the pen and just like, you know, shoving it in my neck. And I like, ah, <laughs> so, it never happened. And now there's like three guards there 
they're like fully chained. But that's the one time I would get nervous when I'd hand them the pencil because I just like this mental image of like a pencil in my eye or my neck bleeding out. So I would get as far away as possible, like hand them the pen and then kind of like pull back real quick. <laughs> but uh, like nothing ever happened. Like I said, they're they, the, the prison system. You, they take good care of people, but you, you can never be too careful in those situations because you're, you're in a situation where something could go wrong. When I was in medical school, there was a rule at the hospitals there that if a prisoner fell down in the hospital, because they didn't have that same medical system in Virginia that they had in Georgia. So the prisoners would come to whatever hospital was closest to the prison with guards and you take care of them in the hospital, which is always awkward. You have a like a mom and a daughter like in for their clinic visit and you have like this prisoner in chains like right next to him. But one guy was coming to, was at the hospital and he pretended to faint and the guard went to catch him. And then as the guard went to catch him, he got the guard's gun. And so, and then he escaped with the guard's gun and it turned into this huge thing. And so there was a rule that if a prisoner falls down in front of you, just hands off, you just let him go down, which, you know, goes against everything you want to do. You want to help people and you don't want to like let them get hurt. If somebody goes to fall, your instinct is to catch them. But we had a rule there that if, if they go down, they go down. You just, you worry about it later. Um, so as much as it's like, yeah, I, maybe I shouldn't have been that nervous around those situations. Obviously, there's situations where you probably should be nervous. So it's better to just protect yourself. But those are the rare circumstances. Like I said, even dealing with some people that told me some crazy stuff, or I knew they were involved with some shady things or gangs or violence, or they were in there for things. I mean, I had a kid come like after a shooting and he got shot and his brother was there and he was part of the gang and they were talking about the gang stuff and the violence and who got shot and who didn't but the brother was just so nice to me he's like hey thank you so much for taking care of my brother i really appreciate it and i'm over here in this conversation i think like oh my gosh this is crazy these are violent people but toward me they had just nothing but gratitude so um yeah i never really felt nervous around people even when it was in a more tricky situation nice yeah. So even yeah. even the people that get involved with violence, like, you know, like I just like most people, I think it's just victims of their own circumstance. I don't think they want to be mean. They're not like deep down, like angry, mean people. I just think it's just like the life that they ended up getting into. Honestly, I, I, deep down, I think most people are just good and trying their best and just life has gotten in the way. Um, so I tried to I tried to maintain that even when I was working in the prison. I've just never asked people what they were in for because I didn't want to know. I just I just wanted to view them as a, you know, as a person, as just anybody else in my life. I didn't want to be like, oh, like, you know, what is this guy in for? I, I didn't even want to know. I just, I wanted to just kind of take it as it came. But uh, yeah, those are a few of my stories. We kind of went through like a couple stabbings, a couple of violent crimes, ended up in prison. <laughs> so yeah, we even took a little like a side trip to Haiti, but that's, that's what I love about medicine. I mean, it's just anybody and everybody needs help. You know, if you're a doctor, every situation, people in your own community, the indigent people in another country, people like that are in jail, people are people. And if they need help and we take the oath to help people, we, we do it. And it just opens your mind and life to a lot of different experiences and meeting people that you wouldn't otherwise meet. And I, I love it. So yeah, the stories, you know, we get bogged down, like I said, about the paperwork and all the stuff I have to do to just practice medicine in the United States that I like telling these stories because it just reminds me it's just about taking care of people. And that if I can keep that in mind, my life's I enjoy what I do a lot more. 
Hi, this is Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so that we can continue to get you more stories in the future.